really good panel for you today. As you can see, you got a uh, Gareth Thomas there. You, we all know him as Alfie, so let's roll with that. Uh, Gareth, obviously a former Welsh international, a captain of the British and Irish lines, and Danielle Waterman, a World Cup winner and a legend in the game of rugby now, charging her way through the, the world of broadcasting, doing a fine job on that. So, uh, Nolly, as you'll now be known for the next hour and a half, and Alfie, good to see you. And stuck in his hotel room in quarantine is Brian Habana. Brian, good to see you. Brian, of course, a member of the successful South African 2009 test team, played in those all-important first two tests where they beat the Lions, and the Lions came back to win the final test, but the test series won by the end of that second test, and it was a remarkable second test. I'm sure you have lots of questions to ask about that. As the Lions prepare to go back to South Africa very, very soon indeed, and we have the big game against Japan this weekend. So uh, lots of questions about that as well. Before all that, though, we are going to talk about... Um, well, tackling HIV worldwide, tackling a little bit of uh, chat about stigma, discrimination and inclusion, because as you can see from the rugby ball on, on the desk in front of Alfie there, uh, we've been uh, working with Tackle HIV and the Terence Higgins Trust doing a podcast for, for the past year or so. And we've been dealing with all topics around uh, inclusion and discrimination and stigma. Uh, and um, it's been a fascinating year, Alfie, hasn't it? Just getting all these big, big topics topics out in the open, getting the key personnel involved and just discussing the issues that are out there, how we're trying to do something about it. Yeah, it's been, it's been, it's been eye-opening. Um, and I think, you know, when we come to what we were speaking about, when you say ta tackling HIV and the stigma and the discrimination um, that, that goes around, I think what's been great is, especially on this platform today, is we've, we've managed to get people who have a platform and I think anybody who has a platform, especially from a sporting ability, then um, people, people listen to them because they understand that these people have gone through whatever form it is of adversity to overcome certain things, to be able to be at the position they're, at in, they're in. So people respect them. Um, so their word holds a lot of weight. You know, you look at today, um, you know, we've got two of the best rugby players that, you know, have, have ever been in the world. Yeah, we've got, we've also got Brian, um, we've also got Brian who's, who's with us as well, but, but what, 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 has, what has allowed us all to be here today and connect is, is our association through rugby and the fact that we weren't all just good rugby players, we've used our ability at rugby or our standing within our sport to create change or to create better environments for people who are either less lucky than us or, or, have or have had different backgrounds, different backgrounds for us. And whether that be in HIV discrimination, whether that be in gender discrimination, whether that be in any form of discrimination um, that, that, that people have to face. I feel what's really relevant and why I'm really proud to sit here today with Tackle HIV is, is the fact that I'm somebody who lives with HIV, yet I have two people who are willing to stand stand with me or sit with me on this format and um, support what we're trying to do in breaking the stigma and discrimination around what I'm very passionate about, but also for me to be able to stand with them and support them in what they're very passionate about as well. Yeah, we are unashamedly using um, this moment to spread the world, word and, and, and get some of you on board to help spread that word. And we will talk about rugby later on. Don't, don't worry about that. But I guess the two worlds of sport and rugby and social change and inclusion are, are intertwined, aren't they, Brian? Definitely, Craig. I think, um, firstly, it's, it's a massive honour and privilege, I think, to be on this platform, um, highlighting, again, topics that potentially are sometimes swept under the rug. And I think why, when I initially got contacted by Gareth and, he, and his team, um, I really felt that this is something you know that I can relate to. Is that you know South Africa as as a country is, and it's not actually a a pandemic; it's an epidemic. Um, the HIV status in South Africa. We, I think we have something like 7.7 .7 million people um, in South Africa, you know, living with HIV. I think we have something like 70,000 deaths a year um, with AIDS or HIV AIDS related causes. So I think it, it definitely hit a lot closer to home. I think we have made a lot of progression in terms of how HIV is seen, um, you know, the, the progression in terms of how it's administered, you know, the negative stigma that has now sort of, you know, been taken away from it and educating people in terms of understanding what it's about. It is potentially life-threatening, 
threatening, but it is also something that if dealt with appropriately and properly, um, you know, can be dealt with. It, it doesn't have to be shunned. It doesn't have to be swept under, under a rug or discriminated against. And obviously it started a long time ago in South Africa. And the more we can voice that um, using our platform, and again, it, it definitely touched a nerve with me. So again, a massive privilege and honor. Um, you know, Gareth has had to overcome many forms of discrimination um, you know, in his own battles in life that myself and Danielle potentially haven't had to. But, you know, we all have things that we can promote using our platforms. And, you know, it's, it's a real privilege and honor to be discussing this topic, um, you know, bringing about educating people around it. Because I think a lot of the times the discrimination, it comes from a place of not knowing. It comes from a place of being scared of trying to find out or know. And again, the easier we make those topics of conversation, you know, I really believe the better we can actually become at creating positive, tangible change. Yeah, well said. Education, a huge part of it. It's something, Alfie, that we've done over the course of the series. We've been able to tell people that uh, there is very good medicine out there. You can live very happily and very healthily with HIV, as, you, as you're a testament to. You can have a very healthy life with a partner. You can have a healthy sexual, sex life. You don't pass it on with the medications out there at the moment. But one stat that isn't really changing, as Brian uh, hinted at there, is that the numbers in South Africa, and I'm just going to remind everyone of them, um, close to 70% of all HIV AIDS cases today are in sub-Saharan Africa. One in 20 adults is living with us in sub-Saharan Africa. And this is a really shocking one. Of all the children in the world living with HIV, 91% are in sub-Saharan Africa. So, Nolly, we're, we're bringing you into this conversation. We're using your voice. Uh, it's new territory for you discussing these things. And we are going to be talking about rugby, but it's a great opportunity to tell the world that uh, we still need support out there for these important causes. Oh, look. For me, it's um, a real honour to be to be asked and to sit next to someone that um, I'm proud to call my friend. And, and actually, I think you know we've all, Gareth alluded to. We've all um, had to face different discrimination, and mine clearly is the fact that you know I'm the female rugby player here, and, and the way that women's rugby has been seen. Um, you know, my first cap was in 2003, and how the the game was viewed then to how it is now. Um, I also have quite a a nice link to the South African ladies. I actually played against them in their first ever test match back in 2004 um, and seeing how they've progressed. And I think, you know, I'm linking female rugby to, to this topic because actually the way that people see rugby is definitely, you know, in, in different communities around the world, not something that women should be doing, should be talking about, should be involved in. Um, and now, you know, the way the, the boys have talked about using platform, that's how the, the women's game and um, acceptance of female players and progress, progression of the elite form is, is actually progressing is, is through the platforms that, um, that the game has, whether that be via World Rugby, um, but also through all of these um, amazing male allies that we have. And I think what Gareth is, has been through and hearing some of his challenges and stories is, is heartbreaking. And I think the way that he is using this platform and the way that we can speak about it and how Brian has said it, you know, this has touched his life. Actually, why are we not normalizing all of these conversations? Why are we not okay with saying um, things that in the past have been a taboo? Um, and you know, from, from my perspective, it's just a real privilege to be here and to be able to, to fly the flag from the female side of the game because it's, you know, it's, that's going from strength to strength and it's an important part of sport, just like any other topic when we look at discrimination, it's about opening opportunities and giving people the chance to do something that they want to do, um, whether society says it's right or wrong. And Nolly, your commentation on the first lines test against Japan this weekend for Channel 4 in the UK. That's a first, first female commentator on a Lions test. This is awesome. <laughs> yeah, I am. Thank you. Um, uh, I, so I've been working with Channel 4 for about two and a half years on their Champions Cup coverage. Um, and when I found out that they had the Lions coverage, I was more than happy to step aside and, and welcome someone that was more experienced than me. You know, I'm still relatively new in all of this industry. And um, they... They said that they were very proud of what we'd done as a team and they didn't see me as a female commentator. They just saw me as one of their commentary, the, the one of their commentary team. And yeah, I think it's, it's a big step forward. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of people will 
find it challenging to have a female voice because they don't like change but actually the world is changing and the world needs to be more inclusive and we need to be seeing all of these different people from wherever they might be whatever background um and that shouldn't be the reason why you don't get the opportunity so yeah super excited a little bit nervous but um i think it it should be one hell of a game um because japan are uh, you know i think probably the world's second favorite team after how they performed at the world cup and finally, of course, the Lions team was no who's the first, Sorry, Nolly. Sorry, who's the yeah. first, Nolly? Who's, who's the first favourite team? Sorry, Japan's Wales second favourite. Brian. <laughs> <laughs> no, everyone else is. But... <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, so not, not the Springboks. Oh, sorry. Okay, just, just clarity. You just start uh, me getting not... myself in, you just start me getting myself in trouble. I'm going to have to repeat it now. It was like, and finally, a Lions team without any English players in the starting 15. Bedtime. <laughs> whoops uh, there is a reason for that of course because there was the uh, the playoff game for Saracens we still have the final of the Gallagher Premiership and we have the semi-finals of the Premiership so lots of brilliant English talent still to come in um, Alfie uh, just on, a, on just pick up on a news story we spoke over the last 24 hours I think it's an interesting Karl Nazib who's with the Las Vegas Raiders an NFL player a very good NFL player uh, he came out uh, as gay uh, yesterday and it's interesting. I, I thought the quote that really caught my eye was the one from the owner of the club, uh, Mark Davies, when he said, uh, I thought we got to the point where this wasn't a story anymore. Did you think we got to a point where a player coming out of the gate wasn't a story anymore? I'd love to think that we are at the point where somebody being gay is not a story anymore. But I think as this proves, and as a very underrepresented community um, within sport, um, continues to be around the LGBTQ plus community is still continues to be underrepresented, then <clears throat> as long as there's a very much a minority, it'll always be a story. It'll always be, it'll always be big deal, big news. And yeah, we live in 2021 and you'd think that in 2021, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if somebody, if somebody at school or if somebody at your workplace comes out, but sports people, as we've just spoken about and why we here are so high profile you know, people hold them in such high esteem. People have a have a understanding of, or believe they have an understanding of who these people are. Or society creates a stereotype to who these people are or should be. And when when people speak about their differences, you know, it becomes a headline. And to a certain extent, um, as much as I don't want it to be a headline, as much as I don't want us to be even talking about it, the reality is the fact that we're talking about it. I hope is the fact that we're celebrating it. And the fact that we see in that, you know, this isn't just a positive message, hopefully within sport, but it's also like a really positive message to maybe somebody who woke up this morning struggling, dealing with their sexuality because they felt, you know, their identity as, as uh, their sexual identity doesn't relate to maybe a sport they want to play or feel like that sport they can't play. So transcending the world of sport, as we're sitting here today, we realize that transcending the world of sport, people's voices within sport can actually do a really powerful and amazing thing. And that's create change, create change, yes, within sport, but more importantly, create change within society. So as much as I wouldn't want it to be a headline because I'd like it to be the norm, the reality is, is that we sit here all knowing it's not the norm. Therefore, it's going to be a headline. But if it's going to be a headline and we're going to talk about it, let's talk about it in a really positive way. Just like we're here to talk about you know, tackle HIV, talk about HIV breaking the stigma and why there shouldn't be a stigma, why there shouldn't be a misunderstanding around people's sexuality, people's gender, people's colour, people's religion. Let's talk about why it shouldn't be in a positive way, in a celebratory way. So in a way, yeah, but I like the fact that we are talking about it in this positive way. How, how big was it to, because he's a current player, because you were, the, you were the, are you still the only current rugby player from the men's game? Um, have come out. Professional, professional rugby union. Um, there yes. is one young Leinster, one young Leinster back rower who, who came out as bisexual recently, a brilliant young fellow, Jack, and he um, he's only 21 and he's 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 been brilliant because uh, sports fans, everyone loves him uh, and the LGBT community love him because he's a great poster boy for them because he's a good player, but he's also a great bloke and uh, very articulate. And uh, he's been brilliant over here in Ireland, certainly on that front. Yeah, and I think it's really important to see that we understand 
we understand that you know as as the as as the guy said in his quote is he he hasn't done this for attention i think people think that people make announcements or they talk about things to gain to gain attention it's the reality that especially within sport you know brian nolly myself all we ever really want to be as far as our you know when we were playing sport all we ever wanted to be judged on was how good we were at sport you know our values as human beings not as not as you know somebody looks at and straight away sees your sexuality straight away because it was kind of it was kind of irrelevant so when people talk about you know the fact that people are doing this and they're doing it just to be more authentic to give them a better mindset to be better at what they do then um, I think that's the real reason you know rather than maybe people thinking that people do it to gain gain some kind of headline some kind of kudos out of it. Brian where, where is that conversation in South Africa in terms of inclusion acceptance ridding stigma? Yeah Dolly I think we again South Africa's got a very unique history um, you know we had the apartheid era and you know we've got our own transformational issues that, you know, and topics that we have to continuously highlight, you know, having someone like Sia Khaleesi not only become the first black African to captain the Springboks after 24 years, 26 years of, you know, democracy, but to then go on and win it um, and speak to, you know, a majority of our population to let them know what is possible and um, to create that bit of hope. Uh, I think from a conservative perspective you know that conversation in terms of inclusivity in South Africa is still very far from from the rest of the world and you know we we're working towards it I think we've you know we've got some other major issues you know crime corruption that you know we need to deal with but again the stigma and for me the biggest thing like I said earlier is is the education understanding people's backgrounds um, and again if you making decisions based on facts that are irrelevant, um, you know, it, it becomes a lot more difficult to actually entice that person. So giving people platforms to discuss that. Um, and again, when you are a sportsman and particularly a rugby player in South Africa and can highlight those topics to open up conversation, to let people know that it is actually, I think firstly, okay to not be okay, but that it is okay to talk about awkward things that you feel are awkward, but that don't necessarily need to be awkward. But because there's a perception and a stigma around its awkwardness, you know, you veer away from it. So again, the more we can get dialogue going, and yes, everyone is entitled to their own opinion. You know, yes, everyone can formulate their own opinion. But if we're not going to respect each other's ability to voice our own opinion and listen to those, um, you know, we're going to be struggling for a very long time. So. Yes, South Africa's plenty got a long way to go. Um, I don't think there has been a professional rugby player that has come out um, in terms of their sexuality. Um, and you know, if it happens, I'm not quite sure how it will be received, in my brutal, honest opinion. Um, but like I say, if we give these platforms and let people know that to have your opinion is going to be okay, uh, but that you need to respect opinions um, in a country that is extremely divided, um, challenging, but like I said, that's that's the reason we use sport as a platform because it is just such an equalizer in terms of how we view each other. And so many of your Springbok teammates have used sport and rugby as a platform for change. Uh, it is interesting, Nolly, isn't it? When you get superstars like that um, supporting people who need support, uh, the effect is immediate. You get all those kind of loud map bravado agents just going, all right, it's all right to support that thing. And they do jump on board. There's a lot of pressure on all of you as prominent sports people, isn't there? Yeah, I, you know, it's wonderful to hear from the Beast. And I think um, I love the fact that he's championing uh, educating youngsters. I think, I, you know, for me, I'm really passionate. I've always worked in, in education um, and coaching. And uh, I think that that's how you change society. It's how you develop people's understanding is that you build their values from when they're young. And if they're seeing their role models, and the people that they, you know, they completely aspire to be like um, talking about these types of conversations, you know, being open and honest and, and normalizing things. Um, actually, that's how you create really significant change. And, you know, I see it massively from, from my perspective, um, you know, having, having all three of you um, as as very prominent figures within rugby um, supporting me as a female player um, it makes such a difference and you know I've been to plenty of events where I'll make a comment and actually you know the the, 
the male player sat next to me will say, yeah, I completely agree with Nolly. And from the, that moment, the audience are nod. So it, it's like, it, it does create that, um, that opportunity for people to, to accept a different voice or to accept something that they might not have um, done previously. Um, but it's massive. And, you know, I think, you know, someone especially like Beast over in South Africa, like Brian, you know, the, the, the credentials that they have on the field, you know, as big, tough warriors, maybe, Brian, maybe not so much, but um, the, the, whoa, the warriors. Whoa, <laughs> whoa, I second, I, second that, I second that, whoa, um, You know, I think that that's the great thing about rugby in particular is the fact that, you know, the way that people see us on the field, um, maybe not the, the back three as much, but that, you know, we, we are tough. And I think for us to say, you know, we're not okay, or this is really important and um, people definitely listen. I mean, the problem with Brian is skin's so good. And you just look, you know, you just don't think he's going to be a tough guy. He just looks, he looks too, he takes too much care of himself constantly to be a tough guy. That's the problem. It's a call get smile, Doily. It's a call get smile. <laughs> gets, gets people every time. <laughs> it certainly does. Um, so the, I mentioned the podcast we do, Alfie, and it's all supported by Vive Healthcare, of course, helping us on this brilliant journey. And they're a global organization focused entirely on HIV and uh, a brilliant organization. Helen McDowell is head of global public health at Vive Healthcare. She's with you there in the room and uh, she's going to say hi to us all. Hi, Helen. How are you? Hi, Brian. Nice to meet you. <laughs> Helen, tell us, uh, tell us about some of the projects you're working on at the moment. Yeah, sure. And I think, you know, it's phenomenal, actually, that there are some some of the strongest examples of organizations who are really driving sport for change are based in South Africa. And I think it's really important to shine a light on the incredible work that they're doing. Um, so I'm gonna you know, draw upon a couple of examples, but there are some more in the media background that we've been sent. And I think the critical thing here is to raise awareness about them, demonstrate what they can deliver and, and spread awareness and make sure more of these um, can happen and, and drive acceptance of them. Um, so there's a couple of organizations, um, Waves for Change, uh, which is based out of Cape Town, uh, and they use surf therapy um, to support social, mental and physical health to break some of the cycles that young people face, whether it's conflict, whether it's violence, gang culture, but also education and, and, and breaking down stigmas around HIV and other things and, and trying to challenge gender norms that are harmful. And we know ultimately have driven huge rates of HIV infection with adolescent girls and young women particularly infected. Last year, six out of seven new infections in young people were in girls. So they are disproportionately impacted. So that's something that we need to address. We are way behind on global HIV targets, three times off the target with 1.5 million people newly infected last year. So we need all the different um, ways uh, in our armamentarium to really fight and end HIV. And sport is so powerful. The other way, of course, um, you know, unfortunately not rugby, um, but actually the biggest impact has probably globally been through soccer. Um, so grassroots soccer is another um, probably organization that you'll have heard of, but also has demonstrated how People being involved are in safe spaces, they build self-esteem, they build confidence, but they also can have conversations around things that bother them, whether it's about relationships or HIV. And, and that really has enabled increased safe sex, it's reduced HIV in some of those groups, and has actually gendered stronger gender equity in some of those societies. We're starting to see a few organizations in the rugby space, I'm delighted to say, you got Scrum, who work in Lesotho, and, uh, and another group working with the Harlequins in Lesotho, um, which probably has one of the highest rates of HIV in the world. So I think it's probably, you know, the thing that's generational, I really hope to see that there is more grassroots use of rugby to drive sport for change. I think we want to see more women in it. And I am really, you know, some of the statistics that really amazed me was actually more than you see in the UK, actually, lots of young people use grassroots soccer, use Tackle Africa, another soccer-based program. And actually it's equally used by girls as it is boys, which I think is phenomenal because I don't think in the UK you see that equity between boys and girls, but it's fantastic that that is having an impact in, in Sub-Saharan Africa and long may it continue and increase. 
brilliant. It's um, the power of sport, Nolly, isn't it? Um, and I, I'm just seeing you celebrating there, hearing about girls playing soccer. In my house, I have four kids, two boys, two girls, one rugby player, one footballer. They're the girls. The boys don't, the boys don't touch either of them. And it's interesting. And when I see my 10-year-old turn around the rugby pitch, I told her how to... I don't know if this is bad, Brian. I told her I had to elbow other girls in the ribs the other day. And she's going, I think it's important for her to know how to give it a bit of that. But um, they are treated... No comment from me. No, well, you know, you didn't need yeah, me. You just ran past them. But um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's great, Nolly, the way they're, they're, they're coming through now. And I just think even 10 years ago, my 10-year-old daughter coming through to play football might have been slightly different now. They're now treated exactly like the 10-year-old boys. That treatment from a young age, that acceptance from a young age is hugely important, isn't it? Yeah, like normalising those images um, and the conversations that I think that young people have. I think, you know, celebrating these incredible, powerful sportswomen, you know, not calling them butch and you know, all of those horrible negative words, actually saying how wonderful they are um, at, at, in what they're achieving. And, you know, when I was 10 years old, I had I was playing rugby with the boys and I had no idea that there was any women's rugby. I didn't even know the Red Roses existed. Um, so the fact that they've got, you know, young people have now got regular access um, to, to see these international women's and also premiership games on TV. I think, you know, the platform of social media, we saw um, Babawa Latcha, um, who's the first ever South African 15s player that's a professional that went out on World Rugby's um, social media and the interview <clears throat> she gave was just wonderful, but they have one mil over a million followers on their, on their social channel. And that the conversations that she was having and talking about the challenges that she's faced, where she's come from, but just the fact she can stand up and say, I'm a professional rugby player, allows other girls to see that that is a possibility. Um, and I think it is just about possibility. It's about showing that um, it, it, sport isn't for boys, you know, it, it's for everyone. Um, and the more that we can champion that and message that, um, the more people will genuinely believe it. And yeah, I think your 10-year-old your, your daughter could probably take down her older brothers, right? <laughs> she probably could. Yeah, she probably could. She's tough. She's cool. And her father. Um, <laughs> not difficult. Not difficult. Um, but compared to me, even though I have to say they're getting better, Alex, look, since the last time you gave me it, they're getting better. Stop it, Brian. Stop it. Hard work. Better than what, sir? It's just, if, if we're saying better than what, um, what are we referencing when we're saying oh, better than? Oh, just a baby on there. <laughs> no you're going to um, say something horrible as well you go you go no, no, I'm actually going to say something nice you know what what's really important i think about changing the narrative isn't just about sportsmen and women you know using their platforms to promote things or companies um, and brands using male and female ambassadors all of those types of things it's also really important for dads um, and the language that they use um, for their sons as much as their daughters and I think a lot of men now you know when they have daughters they kind of scream about the fact that right my daughter's going to do whatever she wants and champion her but I think it's also for 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 men that have got sons um, because how they are their sons will be and I think if women's sport comes on the TV and they're criticizing it and saying they're rubbish or they don't even want it on there and the language that they use to describe the women involved and the way that they behave is exactly how their sons will see that that narrative progressing through their life so I think that there is a massive role for everybody in this um, and it's not just about women inspiring women um, I think there is a mass you know some of the best work I've ever done has actually been with young boys to create a role model you know female role models for them um, so yeah it, it, I think we all need to look a lot closer to home with the language and the way that we behave and the and the things that we're comfortable with talking about on our kitchen tables, you know, at dinner, at breakfast time, you know, whether it be around HIV or gender or inclusion, whatever it might be. And you're obviously, um, you know, you're a good example of that. That's my positive bit. <laughs> well, no, I mean, look, it's, it's, that's just the way it is in our house and, and it always has been, but they, it, it, I, I just, just on how sport um, is represented. It's interesting, uh, Brian and Alfie and Nolly and Helen, we, um, on BT Sport recently, we, we showed the, uh, the the Premiership Allianz Premiership 15s final um, uh, between Harlequins and Saracens, and we threw the kitchen sink at it. We gave it the same production as we would have done a Gallagher Premiership final, 
And up to that point, it had been streamed and it just looked slightly different on television and people were prone to say, nah, women's rugby's terrible. Suddenly when you made a look visually on camera, like the men's game, the reaction was fantastic. Oh, it's brilliant. What a great final. What a great sport. I didn't know. I didn't know. When we at BT paid women's rugby the same respect we gave the men's rugby, the result was such a positive result. Uh, that's what has to happen across the board, Nolly, isn't it? Yeah, it's massive. It'll be I think, treated the same across the board. Yeah, I think the the imagery in terms of TV coverage is you're definitely right. And I think where we've struggled in the past is we don't we get put in these massive stadiums and we don't sell out the stadium. And therefore, you know, on TV it doesn't look as good. But luckily at the moment, no one's been having crowds. We've got crowds back, <laughs> though, but no one has. So actually the normality of seeing an empty stadium actually has genuinely supported the women's games growth. Um, and... I think the other thing is, it's also, you know, during the Women's Six Nations, um, Alfie joined um, Sarah Bonner, who's one of the Scotland players, and was was chatting about the, the women's game. And, I, you know, it'd be interesting to hear what you think, because I, I brought in male players to talk about the game, not just about, I mean, it, it Yes, we need to talk about growth and development. Yes, we need to talk about exposure and, and opportunity. But we also need to talk about it. These women are professional players. You know, they are elite. And so they, we need to analyse it technically, tactically, like we would do with the men's, which we did with the Premiership final. And I think, Alfie, you had a good time. You wrote loads of notes. Yeah, I, wrote, yeah I never write notes. Um, never. I, never even take a pen, I never even take a no. pen. to. I can second know. that even in ITV. But, but, I, but I, I, I made a lot of notes. And what, you know what, one thing I, I found... When I was watching the game, it was Wales v Scotland. It was the last game of the of, of of the Six Nations. There was nothing riding on it for either team, but it was a it was a really good game. And I remember watching it. And so often, um, what I realised is that because the women's game up until last season, where I had a standalone Six Nations, has always ridden on the on the tails of the men's game. So it's either been before a men's game or after a men's game, and it's kind of very difficult to not compare now if you look at a welsh standard all the welsh girls are amateur okay so when you when you see the welsh men's team and then straight after you see the welsh women's team is because they're playing the same sport it's very difficult to not compare what's happening and the reality is is that when i watched it as a standalone game of rugby not making a comparison to a strength level or a speed level i really enjoyed it because, yeah, there was things that were maybe worse than the men's game, but it was also things that were better than the men's game. But it was very, it was very nice to watch it as a stand-alone performance of a game of rugby of two very committed teams um, playing a game of rugby. And I learned at that point that actually we need to stop making this comparison and we need to see women's rugby as women's rugby, not a comparison to what we feel we yeah. want to be delivered into our screen. Because then, do you know what? I think it'd be, who'd want to go and watch two games of exactly the same rugby, one after another? So I think the fact that the women's game now has kind of separated itself um, and people like myself, like Brian, like you, Doily, are, as we call in the word, allies. You know, we sit in here having a conversation about, about women's rugby and how positive we are, how we want women's rugby to grow how we want girls to be inspired to want to become like that how we want the likes of nollies to be household names because of their abilities as rugby players not people who are kind of unknown um yet have won a world cups have won how many six nations you won uh, see she doesn't even know is that many it's insane grams. you know it's it's insane so i i, I feel that uh, you know it's, it's amazing that we're here sitting today talking and, and supporting and being allies towards the women's game. The next conversation, of course, we move to lines is when there's going to be a women's lines tour. Uh, we'll hold on to that thought for a moment, then, Nolly, because, Brian, I know we're going to lose you at one. So let's get into this lines tour. Japan this weekend up in Murrayfield, of course, interesting lines team. Obviously, a lot of the English players unavailable at the moment due to the semi-finals of the Premiership final still to come, the playoff game against Ealing for a lot of Saracens players. But first up, Brian... Are you, I'm putting words in your mouth here a little bit, but are you surprised the tour is going ahead considering the build-up to this one and the amount of doubt and the lack of fans and all those important elements of a Lions tour? 
Really, no, I'm, I'm not surprised. I think, you know, given where the game is internationally, you know, we really need the Lions to, to go ahead. I think if it hadn't gone ahead, it would have had to be postponed four years because it just can't fit anywhere into the current rugby calendar. So, you know, does everything else get pushed out? So, no, I'm not surprised it had to go ahead. I, I, I'm, I'm sort of battling to understand if, it, if we can really call it a tour because, you know, without the travelling fans, without fans in the stadium... It's it's not a Lions tour as, as we know it. I, I know that the South African players are chomping at the bit. Uh, they haven't played an international game together since that final on the 2nd of November in, in 2019. We've had zero international exposure since Super Rugby got cut because of the pandemic, I think in March or April last year. So, um, you know, it's, it's sad that the players won't get to experience the traveling fans. It's sad that there won't be a camaraderie like the legacy that got left by the Lions in, in 2009 in terms of going into the communities and, and experiencing that, that the Lions don't get to travel to the various provinces in South Africa and the different states. It's all in bubbles now. So it's, it's sort of difficult to comprehend. I'm grateful that it is going ahead because I know South Africa needs it. Um, I think our economy would have loved it a lot more if we had the traveling fans. I mean, uh, 100, uh, 100 pounds was probably what can, can survive your month in South Africa at the moment um, easily. So I think it's, yeah, it's, it's sad that we're not going to have the fans. But like I said, given the status of the game in South Africa, you know, we haven't had fans in stadia for you know, the better part of a year and, and two months now. So to at least get some international exposure is, is decent. And like I said, hopefully the on-field performances deliver a series of ultra-high performance. I'm looking at that Lions first test team, 2009. Um, what a team. I mean, just unbelievable yourself. Of course, De Villiers, Peterson, Francois Stein, Puy Dupree, Spees, Bruce O'Matfield, both the Schmidt, Duplessis, the Beast. It was just a loaded, completely loaded. What, what was it like inviting the Lions into your back garden in 2009? And what was it like beating them? <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, as, as a player, particularly from the Southern Hemisphere, unless you're Mornay Stain or Franz Stain, um, there's not many that get the opportunity to twice in a career come up against the Lions. You know, it's just so unique. It comes across every 12 years. There's some test centurions that have never got opportunity to play against the Lions from the Southern Hemisphere to, you know, to tell you about the rareness and the unique, you know, uniqueness around it. So I think to have had the fortune and privilege to, during my career, get that opportunity to then go on and win that series was epic. You know, that second test at, at Loftus in 2009 was by far, you know, one of the most ferociously competitive physical games I've ever been in. And it was a huge spectacle. And yes, disappointing for the Lions, the manner in which it was lost, but, you know, added to, to a great series that, that became extremely memorable. Um, but I mean, I'll never forget running out onto both Kings Park and Loftus, you know, grounds that I'd become synonymous, synonymous with because of being South African and just seeing this absolute sea of red and almost having to pinch yourself to understand where you were, um, to know that normally you see South African flags, green jerseys, and to then as a player, you know, have to compose yourself to actually take on a team who's got as much support in your own backyard as what you have. Um, it was, um, yeah, it was pretty intense to be brutally honest. To come out with a series victory was was really special. And I think the man in which it happened with that Mornay Stain, you know, 56 meter penalty kick in, in the 82nd minute of, you know, the second test made, I think, for extremely, extremely intriguing viewing. Can you remember the moment Ron Nagara put up that, that up and under? Were you thinking what? We were all thinking, what's he, what's he doing? <laughs> yeah, I actually, um, so obviously he took Fariat and I was the guy who picked the ball up and sort of ran through the whole team. And then obviously the penalty advantage was not given. And I was like, well, I was about to go score. So I threw my hands up into the air being on the Lions 22 already. So I actually don't know why the referee blew the whistle. Um, but yeah, I think, again, you know, we'd have to claw our way back. Uh, the Lions were actually really phenomenal that day. That day, they were physically up to it. Injuries, unfortunately, I think played a massive part in, you know, how that game turned out. And yeah, like I said, for us, it was a really special way of clinching the series. I think if it had gone down to that, that third test match in Johannesburg, the teams would have looked very different. It would have been a very different experience. You know, I didn't play in that third test match because the series had already been wrapped up and Peter de Villiers wanted to give other players exposure. But I just think the beauty around it, the, the history around it, and, you know, I've started to, to Drico quite a bit Yes, the Lions and what happens on field is extremely important and intriguing, but 
you know, what a lot of people miss is the legacy that gets left. And in South Africa in 2009, they went into the rural communities and built rugby fields, donated clothes and kit, um, and left a legacy um, more so than what happened on the field. And, and that, again, just the power of sports. And I hear the stories of Grico telling about a one school that they built this rugby field at. You know, some of the Lions players had to come in choppers, um, you know, because of its location. And there was like a thousand odd children just waiting for, and the roars that went up, you know, when these guys got out of the helicopter that most of them would have never seen within touching distance at any point in their life, like left them, left them a tangible moment of positivity and hope that those kids, you know, got to take with them for the rest of their lives. And, you know, yes, we see the on-field things, the professional sport, but the power that sport has, particularly in a country like South Africa, where we have so many challenges, where there is so much discrimination on so many different levels, the power of sport to play a really tangible, positive impact in bringing about social change, I think is something that so many people actually most miss the boat on. And again, you know, for the, for the four of us on this call, knowing that power and, and having experienced it firsthand, yes, the series is big, you know, the on-field um, challenge was massive, but the legacy that gets left it's just something so much more powerful than rugby, which I think we are all extremely grateful to have been a part of. Yeah. Here, here. I think that's exactly what Helen from, from Viv Healthcare was saying there as well. Yeah, the power of it. Amazing. Um, a lot of people waiting to ask questions. Um, so I would start with Brian questions first, because Brian's got to leave us in about 20 minutes or so. So Thanks very much. Hi, Brian. Uh, thanks for your time. Nick. I'll just... I really enjoyed the um, Chasing the Sun documentary. I'm, I'm sure you've, you've seen it. And, um, you know, so emotive, so powerful. I just wonder, um, could you give us a flavour of, of the kind of, uh, you know, emotional um, pull that comes into what it means for the Springboks? And, and, and do you think that's something that maybe the Lions have, have got to get a handle on? Because obviously you've talked about, you know, the, the issues that, that are in South Africa. And um, do you think the Lions will need to understand the deeper significance of, of, of what one, it means to be a Springbok, but two, what it means to be a Springbok that could, you know, that could go down as a legend by beating the Lions? Nick, a very multifaceted question to answer. And I think if you don't understand the uniqueness of South Africa, I mean, I was a 13-year-old boy when South Africa won the World Cup back in 1995. Now, my dad took me out of school for the first time ever to get to experience that. I, rugby was the furthest thing from my brain, not because of the color of my skin, because unlike, you know, 60 odd percent of our population, I got afforded really good opportunities to go to the best schools, to be given a good education. You know, but I got to sit there and see the impact the sport has to play in bringing about change. You know, Nelson Mandela, a black man walking out in a Springbok jersey, which, you know, three years prior was seen as a symbol of oppression. Um, being chanted to by a crowd of 60-odd thousand South Africans, predominantly white, um, and to get inspired uh, to, to pick up that game. You know, 12 years on, I get the opportunity to represent my country, um, you know, be one of two players of color on the field, and you know, go, get to go back to South Africa and see black children in the rural townships running barefoot for a kilometer or two behind the bus to get a glimpse of their heroes, to get a glimpse of hope. And then I, I was fortunate enough to be in Japan and I got pretty emotional um, the week leading up to the final, you know, talking about the Sia Khaleesi story, um, talking about Sia having to watch the 2007 final in a Shabin, which is a you know, local pub in the rural townships, because his grandmother didn't have a TV. Um, yeah, he didn't, you know, he wasn't worrying about the rugby, you know, he went to school the next day not to worry about education, but just to get a meal because that was going to be his only meal for the day. And, you know, those are things, and, you know, if England had won the World Cup in, in 2019, <laughs> yeah, it would have, you know, been well-received, they would have been celebrated. But for South Africa, you have someone like Makazoli Mapimpi, who, as a youngster, had to walk 10 kilometers to school and 10 kilometers back from school five days of the week for five years of his life. And those stories that now become able to resonate with you know 70 percent of our population is something that if you don't understand it it's very difficult to relay can you try teach that to the lions i, I don't know it's, it's very difficult i do think the lions have a unique history um, and the players that represent it you know want to do the jersey proud but as you saw in chasing the sun you know um rasmus aptly put in that you know pressure is not playing for your country you know pressure is knowing where your next meal is coming from and again, 
you know, you, you live with different set of circumstances in, in the UK and the Northern Hemisphere. And for us, we lean on that because it does bring about an extra sense of what we're actually playing for. And like I say, yes, it is emotive, but in the same breath of vein, you know, I know that the Lions will want to come to South Africa like the team did in 97 and do something that, you know, is amazing as beating the, the, the Rugby World Cup champions, which again, I hope will really make for an added extra spicy series. But like I say, for me, it's, it's the legacy beyond that. And, you know, the, the likes of Asiya Khaleesi and Makazoli Mopimpia, Lukanyo Am, that tell stories that resonate with 70% of our population are, are stories that are so powerful and, and so much more emotive. Perfect. Thank you very much, Nick. Um, I'm going to go to Kerry next. Kerry, I will unmute you now if you want to come forward with your question. Thank you very much. Hi, Brian. Pleasure to speak Here. to you. Um, looking at the Lions squad that uh, Warren Gatlin's name, uh, we're very proud in Wales of uh, Lewis Reese Zamet's inclusion. As uh, one flying winger to another, what, what do you make of him? I'm no longer flying now. I'm sort of um, walking very slowly, um, not quite to, to, to Lewis's extent, but I think it's brilliant. I actually said literally a day before the announcement of the squad that, you know, Lewis and Duan van Amarva, I think would have been really good bolters and they were aptly selected. Um, I think Lewis's rise to stardom at such a young age is, is brilliant to see. You know, he, he is someone who you can see is putting a lot of work in various aspects of his game over the course of the last, you know, 18 months, I would say, the marked improvements on every as, um, aspect of, of his game, you know, is visible to see not only in his try scoring abilities, but in his stats that we're all seeing. And again, to, to be the youngest player player on the tour, you know, and, and carrying that rather big teddy bear and making sure that none of the players steal it, I think is a, is a massive honor you know, and something that he, I definitely know, want to learn as much from and, you know, go to South Africa and, and prove that his selection was deserved. And, and like I say, you know, he's come up in leaps and bounds since, you know, the, the Autumn Nations Cup last year. I think he's done really well in, in the, the Six Nations this year and a rightful, a rightful choice. So yeah, long may, long may that continue and long may his rise to stardom. I'm not quite sure if he'll get as many tries as, uh, as Gareth Thomas though in, in the Welsh jersey. <laughs> Thank you, Brian. Um, Ka Kerry, I know you've got another question, but I'm just going to make sure that we get around everybody. Jan, um, do you want to come forward with your question? I've just unmuted you as well, if you want to come forward with your question for Brian. Hi, Brian. Nice chatting to you again. Hi, Jan. Good to uh, see you again. Yeah. Uh, Brian, you obviously touched on the off-field stuff, the differences between 2009 and, and this year. On the field, do you think this year can match uh, the epic nature of what 2009 was, uh, will it be as big a, given the, the absence of spectators, the absence of traveling and, and working in bubbles, can it be as big a tour, a bigger series as 2009 was? For the, the 30 players that will be playing those test matches, um, Jan, I, I think it will be massive. Uh, I know each and every player that is going to go on that park and, and represent you know, the Lions or, or the Springboks will want to give everything to the jersey and to the cause. Um, I think the experience from you know player perspective will obviously be very different. But you know this last 18 months has has been very different for all of us. And you know I know that the South African players are just so eager to get back onto the international stage. You know they weren't a part of the rugby championship last year. They haven't been a part of the Rainbow Cup or Super Rugby over the course of the last year either. So um, you know and then it's sort of the first time in South African rugby's history where we really have a succession plan with, with Jacques Nina but taking over from Rassi Erasmus. So, you know, a guy who was there in, in 2019, you know, knows 80% of the squad that, that will probably play in that first test match. And like I say, and the players will be leaving everything out on that, on that field. No, it won't be a series because of the traveling fans that, that were there in 2009, but it won't take away any of the, you know, the monumental occasion that is the Lions tour. So, Hoping that the on-field performances, like I said earlier, you know, lay itself to an incredible series, um, and hopefully the commentators, um, you know, make it you know as live and vivid for for the people watching on the TV. Perfect. Thank you very much, Brian. Stephen, um, I'm going to come to you next. I'll just unmute you now if you wish to go ahead with your question for Brian. Thanks very much. I appreciate it. Uh, nice to see you, Brian. Uh, Stephen. Brian, you spoke earlier about that second test at Loftus, you know, and having been there, I've never seen such sheer brutality from the press box. Um, it was 
absolutely incredible. Um, not before and not since. Um, in terms of the Springboks having um, been been out of international rugby now for for so long, um, from a physical point of view, where do you think they will be going into the first test, and then would they realistically be able to match the Lions in that part of the game? I 100 without a percent doubt think so. Um, you know, I look at the likes of the individuals that I think will probably play the first test. You know, your Stephen Kitsops of the world, the Bongan Numbies, the the Evan Etzebest, the Peter Steptoy, who's come back from injury and has been playing phenomenal rugby. You know, there's potentially going to be a really big influence from overseas that has had international exposure. You know, the likes of the Dupre brothers, Fuff, you know, Fuff de Clark, um, Damon Dalendi has been playing incredible rugby for Munster. So. I know we've got this mindset that the South African team haven't been getting international exposure, but a big part of that team or the core part of that team has been getting international exposure, whether it be in Europe, in France, in Japan. Um, so I am not worried about the physicality and you know being South African and seeing the work effort and behind the scenes practice getting put into the series. Um, I have no doubt that the physicality, and you know, that's probably where the Springboks were at the strongest in, in that Rugby World Cup final in 2019. So I I definitely don't think we're not going to see physicality from the Springboks. You know, probably someone like Dwayne Vermeulen, um, who might not play, he was the biggest impact with regards to physicality. But then you have the Dupree brothers who have been playing phenomenally, um, you know, over, over here. You know, Visa, you know, Visa as well was in, was in the squad now is, is going to be phenomenal. So I'm extremely excited. I think, you know, the Lions are coming to make sure that Warren Gatlin becomes the first Lions coach to not lose a series, um, having gone through all three, you know, beaten Australia, you know, drawing with the All Blacks in 2017. So <laughs> I think this is going to be a series that uh, on-field performances are just going to make it because there's so much at stake. Thank you, Brian. And I know you just need to head off in two minutes. Just before you do so, uh, Simon has a question for you. Simon, you should be able to uh, be unmuted now. Hi, Brian. Just a very quick one for me. What's um, your actual prediction for the test series? Who's going to win and by what margin? Oof. So I would actually love it to be one all going into the third test uh, just to create the extra hype. I really do believe, um, again, given the experience of that Springbok squad, I know there will be extremely eager to get out onto the park and, and show their worth. Uh, I, I really do believe we also have some some great youngsters coming through the system. So I see the Springboks uh, hopefully getting a 2-1 series victory, clinching it in the third. Lovely. Thank you, Brian. Thanks, Brian. Thank you so much. Thank you all. Um, Alfie, I think thanks for giving us the opportunity. Thanks for being a spokesman. Thanks for being an advocate um, to bring about conversations with regards to elements of life that you know sometimes get swept under the rug. I think it's, it's great to support causes like this that are being done for the right reasons. And again, I think like Nolly knows, I think being an advocate is probably a lot more important than, than talking about it. It's, you know, it's putting putting words into actions. And I think you put those actions into place better than, than any of us. So really appreciate you giving me the opportunity. Um, yeah, and hopefully we can uh, get a game of walking touch against each other on a tackle HIV program because um, yeah, Nolly, Nolly actually tackled me at the HSBC sevens uh, in Cape Town two years ago. And my knee, I can no longer, my knees bugged. So she hasn't offered <laughs> to pay my third party insurance either. <laughs> Don't mind. Cheers, bro. Thanks, Cheers, buddy. everybody. Cheers, Thanks bro. for having me. Go well. Take Cheers, care. bye.